Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, 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 hey. Uh, it's time for Matt's pre-episode speech with some ways we can all help to support our community and expand our mentality during this time. First up, if you have Netflix, and I'm guessing most of you do, please check out the documentary Disclosure. It's an insightful look into the media's presentation and perception of the trans community and how that representation has affected our society over time. It includes interviews with Laverne Cox, Alexandra Billings, Candace Kane, many more. It's very moving, it's smart, it's informative, so please take some time to watch it. Also, Netflix's algorithms often immediately present to you what has been streaming the most at that time, like The Lorax or Kissing Booth 2. So when you watch it, you're not only informing yourself, but you're helping boost the documentary's visibility to others. So again, take a moment to watch it, if you can. Uh, If you're looking for a Black-owned business to support, I'd like to recommend Ivy's Tea, which is a company that sells herbal tea blends and herbal infused sweeteners online, as well as specialty china, tea infusers, various merch. Many of the tea names are inspired by hip-hop songs and artists, and the company has made major strides in bringing African herbal remedies to the forefront of the industry. You can check out their products on their website, which is linked in the information page for this episode. Uh, Also, after this episode, I will continue to include new businesses to support, works of art to uh, expose yourself to, and major petitions to sign or funds to donate to. But for the sake of everyone's time in the future, I will now no longer start each episode with an announcement of them, but rather I will solely list them in the description box for that week's episode. So we also get the information, but you don't get this super long speech beforehand. Everybody wins. Um, Great. Okay, that's it. Thanks for your patience, guys, and enjoy a new Broadway breakdown. Hello, everyone out there in the iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, YouTube, web stratosphere. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown. Uh, I am Matt Koplick. With me is a special returning guest. Some of you know her, some of you love her. I kind of both of those things, but not completely. Uh, Allie Gordon. Hi, Allie. Hi. (laughs) Uh, That is a really succinct intro, because some people know me, some people love me, some people a combination of both, and most people neither. Yes. Uh, And some of us, it's like 50% of both, which I would say accurately describes my feelings about you. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. How are you doing today, Miss Allie Gordon? Um, you know, we live in Groundhog Day and every day is is the last day and the next day. Exactly. So that's tough. Um, I did buy, I bought an auto harp. Oh. I just decided I really wanted to like, um... You know how, like, in quarantine, your brain will, like, click and, like, suddenly you'll be like, I can work out again. But, like, it took, you know what I mean? Like, it, like, took a while. Like, you had to, like, wake up one morning and be like, wait a minute. I don't work out. I should work out. But it's, like, suddenly you had to, like, come, you had to get to that stage. And I finally was like, you know, I could get, like, a hobby, right? And, like, (laughs) so now I have a hobby and I, like, practice playing an instrument. What I love is that, so Allie and I have turned off our video cameras for Zoom, and yet, even though I did not make a sound, Allie could absolutely tell that I was laughing at her. 
Well, hundred percent. Um, and I should be laughed at, yeah. but yeah, I like, I woke up oh, one day that. and was like, I don't think I should look at Twitter all day today. Like I probably oh, should no. have like a hobby. Yeah. And so I invested in an instrument cause I've always wanted to learn something new and yeah, basically uh, the, the song I learned how to play last night was kind of woman from Pippin. It's really fun. You are everything I've ever wanted to be and everything I feared I might become. I know. I think that you and I are like, because our like formative years were so entwined, I feel like you and I are like uh, frayed ends of the same rope. Very you know much what I mean? so. Yes, 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 yes. And we'll, we'll get into specifically uh, our main connection from our formative years. But for anybody who did not listen to Allie's first appearance on this podcast, where we talked about her obsession with Corum Boy, uh, Allie and I have known each other for almost 15 years now. Holy moly. Uh, yeah, almost half of our lives, which is crazy to me. Uh, we met doing an after-school musical theater program called Applause, and then went off to the prestigious Stage Door Manor Performing Arts Camp. Um, <laughs> which Institution. After- institution. I actually thought of you the other night. So for anybody who does follow me on Instagram, they know that I went on a late night drunken binge watch of both Princess Diaries and Princess Diaries 2, a royal engagement. And two things. One, Chris Pine, I wouldn't say he was my sexual awakening, but he was definitely the beginning of my sexual fetishizing. And the other thing is I forgot how into Anne Hathaway's hair I was in the first movie with the blowout. And then I thought about Allie Gordon because Allie Gordon's first really big role at Stage Door Manor was... Eponine. In Les Miserables. And another guest, former guest of the podcast, Natalie Walker, was in that same production. And I remember, I think it was Natalie or it was Rachel Geisler called me that summer to tell me the parts. And Rachel said that she was Tenardier and said that you were Eponine. And what was my response to Allie Gordon's casting of Eponine? She has Eponine hair. <laughs> I still don't know what that means. But you were right in your own way. Also, <laughs> I think that like, my hair when we were teenagers was Anne Hathaway pre-blowout. In the last like year of my life, I was like, you know what? I have curly hair. And so I like don't blow dry my hair anymore. And I've been like putting curly products in mm-hmm. it. And I got to say, I feel um, liberated. Yeah. I mean, your hair is body, yada, yada. And I love it. Last night, so we're recording this on a Saturday. Last night was the finale of All Stars 5. Yeah. And we were talking about it right before we recorded. And I was like, no, I want to hear opinions right off the bat. I'm assuming you're a Shea Coulee stan, yes? A hundred percent. How could you not be? Yeah, how could you not be? Also, I feel like in terms of like uh, reality TV is different than just a competition. So like a reality TV competition has a story to tell. Yes. And the story of this season was Shay wants to prove that she's a winner and she already, and she always has been. You yes. know what I mean? Home has been in your own backyard this entire time. And like, she, she walked in ready to prove herself, but in that, in just by the mere fact of doing that, she had already proved herself. Oh so, my God. you're end so of story. gay. You are so I, gay. Thank you so much. <laughs> but also, she was like amazing this entire season, and like you couldn't clock her for a single thing. She was wonderful. Sure. I mean, I, so yeah, I just, I, listeners, we're going to get it out of the way just because I need to talk about it, and then we'll move on to today's main subject, which is why I called up Allie today. Ah. Uh, All Stars 5 for me was overall a severe disappointment because it mostly just felt from the get-go that it was an excuse to give Shea Coulee a crown, which I'm not against it because I love Shea Coulee and she's royalty to me. 
but I truly felt that only Jujube Cracker and Alexis Mateo were actual competitors. Everyone else for me was filler. But yeah, I don't know. I Drag Race has kind of gotten me all messed up now because I it's one of my purest forms of entertainment while we are going through the upside down and I find it to be tainted sometimes, uh, which leads me to our main topic today. Wow. <laughs> that, that's actually one of the smoothest transitions. I don't even know if we're going to have a Billy Abeck to date with you. So last time Ali Gordon was here, we talked about a giant British epic play that was historical and fanciful and made its way over to the United States uh, and didn't do super well here called Quorum Didn't Boy. do super well. It like couldn't have done worse. That's well, I mean, I guess Enron or Festin did worse, but all right, that's true. And I saw Festin. Oh boy, did I see Festin. But <laughs> we're talking about a play that had a very similar trajectory, but had the opposite effect. Actually did super well in America, went on to have an iconic film version. And the reason we're talking about it is because it is the last play that the National Theater uh, is streaming on their YouTube channel. I think it ended on Thursday, and I don't know if they're going to do another play for a while anyway. Allie, what is today's topic? We are talking about, and I say this with, with everything in me, the best movie ever made, and one of the best plays ever made, Amadeus. Amadeus inspired by the lives of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri. Is that his yep. first name? Antonio. Oh, look at me. Look at me. See, look at you forgetting his name. <laughs> That's so on brand with the story. Honestly, though, Matt, if not, he's not in the play, but like if we had to cast you in Amadeus, you would play that priest who like comes to talk to Salieri. Sure. Do you know what I'm talking about? Who's like, oh, yeah, that's yes, wonderful. I didn't know you wrote that. And he's like, I didn't. I didn't. Mozart. Yeah, Though he's yeah, not in the play, but he's totally in the movie. Yep, yeah. that's you. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And if I were to be in the play, I would be Katerina. But that is <laughs> not, we're getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, as I said, we were talking about Amadeus today because it was just streamed on the National Theater broadcast on YouTube. And little known fact, Amadeus is a play and a movie that has bonded Allie Gordon and I since our teenage years. Yeah. Yes. Th this was, I would say probably more so than Sweeney Todd. This is what kind of made us go, oh, you, you're someone I'm going to know for a while because no one else I know feels the same way about this as I do. Totally. And like, uh, you know, we were of the um, sect of musical theater teenager who was already a pretentious asshole. So, so being so. like, I know Sweeney Todd. It's like, bitch, we all know Sweeney Todd. Get in line. You know what I mean? It wasn't <laughs> like line, we were Bethany. like, yeah, it wasn't like we were like, I like Wicked. And it was like, shut up, Wicked. I've seen Sweeney Todd. Like, we, it wasn't clout at that point. Like, so to be like obsessed with this weird genre film from the 80s. Totally. And also like, I just remember us both being like, and oh my God, Christine Ebersole is in it like sick we were sick in the head yeah and still are but that was important so let's do a quick background check on this play uh because we're gonna go because we will go into both the play and the film part of the reason why we're bringing it up again is because the national theater broadcast so this play was written by peter shaper who had written the play equus which really kind of made him a i, I hate to use the term household name especially with playwrights because that's not usually 
applicable. But I would say Equus was a really, really huge hit in London and in New York. And Amadeus was sort of his follow-up and premiered at the National Theater, where it was a really big hit as well. Surprisingly, not nominated for Best Play at the Olivier Awards, if you can believe it or not. Wow. No, I, I had no idea. Uh, Nicholas Nickleby won that year at the Olivier's, but Nicholas Nickleby had a faster transfer to Broadway than Amadeus did. I'm not entirely sure why, but Amadeus uh, came to New York with a totally restructured ending and I think some like edits here and there starring a then unknown Ian McKellen as the lead role of Antonio Scalieri. Sally, Scalieri, Salieri, what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with me? Uh, and speaking, speaking of Ian McKellen, look up some photos of him in that production. He is gorgeous. Hot. Yes. Hot, hot, hot. Um, Tim Curry was Mozart in that production and Jane Seymour, who most will know as the MILF in Wedding Crashers, who forces Owen Wilson to touch her boobs. She plays Mozart's wife, uh, Constanza, otherwise known as Stanzi. And yeah, it was, it was just really, it's, it's hard to explain really because plays are not the, don't have the cultural impact as they used to. Every now and then one kind of like breaks through like August Osage County or- Doubt was a big one. Doubt, yeah. I remember again, and this is still coming from an unbelievably privileged position, but like there are a couple plays in New York that become like the cultural talking point. Yeah. And like, if you haven't seen it, you are like, it's like, oh, you haven't seen it. Yeah. And I remember when Doubt came to Broadway, that was like the talking point show um, because- Famously, my parents hated plays and musicals, but would mm. occasionally like have to see something because it was like the thing. And yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember my parents saw Doubt, and my mom came home and was like, "Yeah, the priest did it." And I was like, "Don't you think the point of the show is that like you don't know?" And she's like, "No, it was the priest." And she's the only person in the entire world who saw Doubt and left with no doubt. But so, um, yeah. No, th- Every now and then there's a play that kind of is the cultural talking point, especially in New York City. Doubt was one. August Osage County. Uh, Amadeus, when it came to New York, like this is a play that ran for three years on Broadway and had like multiple national tours. And part of the reason also why it ran so long is because really prestigious actors wanted to do it, like had no problem replacing Ian McKellen later in the run, just because it's like this Salieri was at that time considered like the meatiest role you could have. And on top of all of that, it was a really fascinating look at history because A, it's not historically accurate. Uh, it takes a lot of liberties, which is also really kind of the point of the play. But also it wasn't this stuffy period piece, which until that point, most period pieces kind of had been. Right. Or it's- if they weren't, they were like an out and out comedy. Yes. And this was like not Tartuffe and it wasn't like Moliere. Yeah. Or it wasn't like um, like a Ken, Ru- Ken Russell has this movie called uh, Litsomania. Have you heard of it? Yes. I've never seen, but yes. Yeah, it's. I mean, I've only seen pieces of it. And if anyone's familiar with Ken Russell, he also filmed the movie version of Tommy. And that movie is super bonkers. Litsomania is even more bonkers. And like that, that was just like an all out and out, not everyone knows it's not historically accurate kind of movie. Uh, Amadeus is a pretty straightforward telling but it doesn't take itself too seriously like it takes its theme seriously but it doesn't take the fact that it's in 1700s vienna seriously right and like uh, something that i do uh like about the production design from the original is that Mm -hmm. like 
uh, even though it wasn't taking itself too seriously, it also didn't like be like, wink, wink, anachronisms. It like sure. really was like, I am a period piece. I just am going to be exciting too. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of a murder mystery. I'm kind of a courtroom, court drama, not courtroom, but like, you know, like court, court, royal, like court royal drama. Court. I'm kind of a like um, semi-musical piece. Like we're going to like full on see musical numbers. And so it's like, it had yeah. so many pieces of genre without also, ever like underselling them which I think also like full-on gossip girl too Th- like that too yeah there's a lot of gossip girl in amadeus which so okay ali i want you to take the floor for a second speaking purely the play because the movie yes it is similar plot wise but I, what is amadeus about amadeus is largely especially the play about antonio salieri who was the court composer uh of vienna um, who is usurped in uh, stature by uh, Mozart, who already has had uh, fame as a child prodigy. Uh, and he's like, oh, it's no big deal. He's just like a one-trick pony hack. And then when Salieri hears Mozart's music for the first time, he is so overwhelmed by its quality and inherently its godliness that it drives him crazy because... Uh, Salieri, who is a very chaste and appropriate and, like, you know, God-fearing man, doesn't understand why God would choose to give that amount of talent to somebody who is, uh, like, acts like a child, is petulant, is bad with money, doesn't know how to, like, have favor with the courts. And so it's this weird tension between as the world doesn't recognize Mozart's talents for being too complicated or too many notes or whatever it is, Mm. Salieri wants to sabotage him because it would do him well to sabotage him. But in his heart, he's going crazy because he knows what he's purposely doing is sabotaging the voice of genius. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also kinda at the end, he's like, oh, and I also killed Mozart. I gave him arsenic and I killed him. And so it's like this, the like moving parts of the story are like the courts and like disembodied voices gossiping and being like, did you hear Salieri did this? Did you hear Mozart acted like this? So that's the gossip girl part of it. It's in true British form. It is about many things and it is presented in many ways. It is not, you know, like a death of a salesman or a streetcar named desire where it's pretty straightforward telling. Uh, It's takes place over, decades really and multiple locations multiple people it's also a memory piece because this play is bookended by Salieri as a very old man who is reminiscing on his time as the royal composer and at the time the most celebrated composer in Vienna certainly the most popular and sort of saying how all of it didn't matter at the time to him because Mozart's genius was such a nagging presence in his life. And then after everything that he's done, because, or, so, oh God, I've, it's it's really truly hard to kind of capture it all without just having someone see it. Uh, but there's like a whole revenge plot in the play that's kind of lessened in the movie. Then the play Salieri is like truly this like Mr. Burns-esque villain who's just constantly finding new ways to 
sabotage. Uh, exactly, to sabotage. Right. Whether it's like sabotaging the attendance of his operas or the perception of him as like a, you know, people would make money being like a teacher or a tutor mm-hmm. and he would make sure to spread gossip that said like, oh my God, he's going to touch your daughter inappropriately or like whatever yeah. it is. Like, so it was like many, all the different ways he could possibly sabotage this man. To like also um, fully, to also fully in the play, they imply that when Mozart is writing the magic flute, uh, there's a, this like essentially fraternity in Vienna called the Masons that Mozart belongs to that have provided him with money because Mozart can't get a job. He can't get his works performed. So the Masons are offering him money and Salieri's like, no, I need him to be absolutely destitute. So he's like, why don't you put some of those like rituals that you do for the Masons in the magic flute? And Mozart's like, okay. And then the Masons get pissed and cut him off completely. And it's like, Salier, that is, no. First of all, Mozart was like not responsible for the libretto of the magic flute. No. Second of all, um, yeah, it's, anywho. Uh, But yes, it's a lot of that kind of revenge stuff. But sort of the gist is the entire time throughout the play, Salieri's like, if God were trying to punish me, wouldn't he have done so by now? I keep sabotaging Mozart and I keep, you know, succeeding and my works get recognized. But then by the end of the play, as time goes by, Salieri's work falls out of fashion and Mozart, after his death, becomes known as the genius that he was. And Salieri's like, I will not be forgotten. So he decides that he's going to himself spread the rumor that he killed Mozart and try to take his life. But then the further joke is that no one believes the rumor and he also lives through the suicide so he has to live through people not believing the rumor um and something i do like about obviously we will talk about this as part of this matt and i both agree that the movie does nothing but improve upon already amazing material yes um and they switch this plot line up a little bit to be a little more like in the moment because the movie wouldn't really work if it was just like telling only things that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though even the, though the movie starts as like a confessional, so it is kind of a memory piece, you still get to see like the attempts of like, is there murder? Is he actually responsible? Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what is so good about the movie is that in the play, this whole thing about like, oh, I poisoned him. You're like, well, did you? And again, like, that's the point is that like everybody doesn't believe him. So the fact that the audience doesn't either is like kind of fun. But also it feels, it doesn't feel necessarily like inherently tied up in the plot. Like there's no like point in the, there's no Chekhov's gun about poison in like the music, in like the musical. Oh my God. In the play, I wish. Um, (laughs) It's kind of a musical in its own way. Totally. But yeah, so it's like, you know what I mean? There's not like all this talk of poison and then like, ooh, it comes to a head when he mentions poison. Whereas in the movie, they sort of switch it so that like Salieri's pulling more of the strings in Mozart's demise and not just in his reputation, but that like he, the implication is like, did he work him to death? Do you know what I mean? And like, I think that's great and is only an improvement on the source material because uh, it feels possible, but also not so possible that it like feels like conspiracy theory mm. and also like people know that mozart in fact died largely destitute and in the middle of a bunch of works he couldn't complete and overexerted and things like that and so it's like oh cool for it to be like the theory in this show that salieri was the person pulling all those strings making sure he was so overexerted and so poor he couldn't complete any of these these things and died like that kind of feels almost possible and it feels like tied in the plot and in a way that like the oh yeah I also tried to kill him doesn't do you know what I mean yeah no it's that sort of the genius of the work is that it is 
it is a historical fantasy in the same way that like Anne of a Thousand Days or Lion in Winter is. You know, it's it takes people who lived and moments that happened and sort of connects the dots in a in a fictional way that is totally plausible, but you know, is not intended to be 100% fact. It's more sort of like the impression of history rather than a fully documented account of history. The National Broadcast was the last revival of this piece that was done in their biggest stage, the Olivier, which has this big drum revolves, this huge turntable that can go up and down and like a stage that just goes back for the gods. And it was this huge elaborate production and it was most famous because there are all these performances in Amadeus, right? Like all these operas that are happening. And in a normal stage play, you really can't do justice to the grandeur of the performances, especially because they are usually done in a pre-recorded fashion. Like the, the music is pre-recorded, the singing is pre-recorded and people are pantomiming the performances. And this revival, everything was done live. They had a full-blown orchestra on stage and actual opera singers performing the operas. And it brought a really great sense of energy to the stage show that I really liked. Yeah. Um, I will say the other thing that I think it does is it convinces the audience that Mozart is a genius. Yes. Not that I think that that's very hard to do. I really do think uh, that moment in the Amadeus movie where the priest is like, I didn't know you wrote that. Like that could be a moment about almost any song Mozart has written. He's written so many like iconic pieces of music that like, I'm sure any layman would be like, oh my God, cool. That was Mozart. I know that one. Exactly. So it's like, not like that's a hard task, but when you see the orchestra doing it and you like feel it live in the space, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this music is godly. Like there's no words that Peter Schaefer could come up with could do justice to it. And totally. it's why it's so important to have that and why I thought this, where this last revival was very successful, but it also, watching the streamed production also reminded me of the genius of the movie and how it improved on it in so many ways because so many things that are exposition in the play, they make action in the movie and they kind of up the ante on everything because uh, the stage show is so very theatrical. And so like a lot of it is very impressionistic and the movie takes a more literal approach, but they have fun with it, with yeah. how they do transitions, how they go about presenting stuff. Um, I want to talk about the streamed production for just a quick second so yeah wait can i say something that i so matt and i were texting about this and that was like save it for the stage baby let's record this tomorrow and i was like (laughs) um but something that i have like kind of done a 180 on since we texted Mm -hmm. was one of the framing devices of this live stream production from the national theater was that the beginning starts and it is not seemingly a period piece uh, it's like an orchestra warming up and they're wearing like orchestra blacks in modern clothes and Salieri comes out and he's in a wheelchair, but it is not like a period appropriate wooden wheelchair. It is like a modern wheelchair mm-hmm. and there are music stands made of like iron and he eats a Krispy Kreme donut from a Krispy Kreme donut box. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like clearly like present day. Mm. And then in his like memory, the stage opens up, like we were talking about, it's like that huge stage. And then everybody's in period costumes, including Salieri and like the anachronisms like disappear. And Mm -hmm. at first I was like, why would you even bother making this big statement about it being like 
a time period, but no time period at all. Only to like go right into like a full-fledged um, period piece. And I like didn't love it. And I was texting Matt and I was like, I don't know how I feel about this woman in her black flea bag jumpsuit. Cause you like look like- That's literally was- her. That was literally, literally. her morning. That's what it looked like. It looked like she like walked out and I was like, okay, well that's a sexy woman in a sexy jumpsuit. Like, yeah. and I didn't really know how I felt. And then like through watching the show, I, I feel like I've kind of changed my opinion because now I think it's like, oh, Salieri is eternally cursed mm-hmm. to be the person on the outside understanding Mozart's phenomena. And like at the time he was the only person who recognized his genius and then lived a long enough life. He lived a really long time to mm-hmm. like see Mozart recognize as a tragic genius even in his own lifetime that he was like, oh my God, like I went from being the only person who believes in him to being like everyone being like, oh, poor Mozart, I can't believe he died. And so like the point of that like weird sort of out of time thing is that like the character of Salieri, the archetype of Salieri is Uh eternal. And he's like, he will always be the footnote to Mozart's story and not vice versa. You can't talk about Salieri without talking about Mozart, but you can talk about Mozart without talking about Salieri. 100%. And people who talk about Salieri only do so because of Amadeus. No one's like, well, in my time as a scholar of this time period, if we talk about Mozart, we simply must acknowledge Salieri. It's like, not at all. Well, so to be fair, to be fair to Amadeus the play uh, by Peter Schaefer, it is inspired by another play and an opera that was written in the early 1800s, based off of, or I guess the mid 1800s, based off of the news item that Salieri tried to commit suicide, saying he had killed Mozart, and because that I was like reading up history on this, and Peter Schaefer is like a, a classical music buff, and he was looking up sort of information about this because I guess. Back in the day, newspapers weren't meant for the common man. They were meant for the deaf. Huh. Uh, like, because that's, they literally call it like the book for the deaf man. And it's, I guess, because like, you know, most news was spread by word of mouth. And so this was something printed for deaf men to read. And it literally said, you know, Salieri tries to commit suicide, says that he killed Mozart but it's just uh chalked up to dementia and then somebody made a play about the rumor of that and then someone made an opera based off of the play and then like a hundred years later Peter Schaefer does Amadeus but in that time the same was still said like you didn't talk about Salieri without talking about Mozart and interestingly enough I would argue that Amadeus has now revived interest in Salieri's work uh because no one really ever did it until Amadeus came out and everybody's like, well, was Salieri that mediocre? And in some ways, yes. Uh, and, you know, yeah, in some ways, he, yes. he wrote very pleasant music. It's not unattractive. It's just not exciting, nor is it as um, distinguishable as, you know, Mozart's. But also, you know, Salieri was a great teacher. He taught Beethoven and many other prominent composers. So it's not like he was a super vengeful man. Uh, the play just treats him in a very specific way. Also, so I brought this up and I didn't really, I didn't really fully hit the point home before we get to the movie. The part of the reason why the relationship of Salieri and God is important is because in the play and the movie drives it even further to the detriment of historical accuracy, Salieri basically makes a pact with God in his youth that he wants to be a celebrated composer. And the words are very important there. He does not say a great composer. He says, make me famous, make me celebrated, make me beloved. And basically, when Salieri meets Mozart, he meets him as this, as you said, you know, petulant child who 
has foul mouth, has no manners, but creates the most glorious music. And to Salieri, that wasn't talent or genius. That was a gift from God. And I believe Amadeus is Latin for like beloved from God or something like that. And, uh, you know, by destroying Mozart, it is him disavowing God and saying, I'm going to ruin your prophet because you betrayed me. Right. And like what kind of God that I would believe in would put these talents into this kind of a man and yes. also curse me with the ability to recognize it. Yes. Thereby yes. just being so cruel to me and like making me the only per like if only I couldn't see his genius. Yes. And like that, that is another reason why like um, the play affords for like talking to the audience and mm -hmm. the movie needed to do something kind of like that. So they kind of introduced this character who's like a priest who's come to get confession from Salieri because he's like, you know, quote unquote, like a sick man now. And so sometimes there are like cutaways where he's directly talking to him. Mm -hmm. But other times it truly is just the genius of the performances, which are universally incredible in the movie, um, where it's just like a bunch of people disinterestedly clapping at the last number of a Mozart opera. Mm -hmm. And it's like a shot of F. Marie Abraham as Salieri, like weeping racked with these feelings these conflicting feelings of like it's the best thing i've ever seen and it's killing me yes it's amazing it's it's it is truly a wonderfully complex uh point to make about how salieri is the only he is cursed to to not be as talented as mozart and also to be the only one at the time that recognizes how talented mozart is uh, it's like being inside your own prison, uh, which makes him a very complex villain, which means he would have no place on Drag Race because the producers of Drag Race have no time for <laughs> complex villainy. You have one point of view, you have one storyline, and then you're done. So we have now earned the right to talk about the film. Yay. <laughs> Which, like, full disclosure, is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's probably Allie's favorite movie of all time. It definitely is. I mean, like, there are a lot of wonderful movies out there, but, like, everybody has to pick a favorite, and, mm -hmm. and Amadeus is my favorite movie. Well, I mean, I would say Amadeus is, like, in my top, definitely my top ten, possibly in my top five. Uh Th three of which are actually all from the 80s. Amadeus, Working Girl, and Little Mermaid are all probably my top five favorite films. Nice choices. Thank you. Working Girl is number one favorite. Uh, Amadeus, I will also, I will go out on a limb and say definitively, it is the best film adaptation of a stage play ever. Yes, I do think that's also true. It also starts with the song Let the River Run, just like Working Girl does. <laughs> they have that in common. <laughs> Yourself. <laughs> that is so true but not at all they both start with that song um but yeah you it's know, like it's a perfect adaptation everything will pale in comparison to the adaptation of amadeus i really it's think true that. which and it's and it's a testament to how phenomenal the film is because the play is really wonderful the movie is just even better it really sweeps you up and like the uh the framing of the movie as opposed to the framing of the play is that it starts with Salieri's suicide attempt. So mm -hmm. it's already right off the bat, dramatic. And, and like right off the bat, different from the show. Like you're like, right. oh, this is not how the show opens, fuck. 
And then the next point is he's like this old man who's kind of in a nursing home, kind of in an insane asylum Mm -hmm. because of his suicide attempt. And this priest comes to like get confession and be like, what's going on with you? Like, do you need God? Like, let's talk. Mm -hmm. And he essentially is like, yeah, I killed Mozart. And it's like right at the top. Mm -hmm. So the whole movie is painted in this new context of like, you what? Because, like, you see Salieri and he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that goes around killing people. And then you see his torment. And then you're like, how's he going to do it? Is he, like, like, it it becomes, like, beyond this period piece and this, like, celebration of music and this, like, internal portrait of a man driven mad by his um, inner saboteur, if we were going to bring it back to Drag Race. It, It also is, like, kind of a murder mystery, which, like, when I first saw the movie, I was like, I don't know how this is going to tie into the movie. And I am thrilled to find out mm-hmm. it just like it's such a good like engine for the whole yes. movie to run on it went from the from the get-go the movie shows you it is not going to be the period film you thought it was there's a line also that i forgot about where which is really the theme of the whole story which is the priest says to salieri all men are equal in god's eyes and salieri looks at him and he goes are they and that is just like, because it's that is the catalyst for him to talk about Mozart. Because Priest says, "Oh no, we're all the same. God loves us all equally." And Solieri's like, "Does he though?" Because um, he's like, "Let me tell you about someone myself who committed himself wholly to God, and then God decided to gift this piece of shit, um, and then like cursed me to understand that this man was gifted." Yeah, it's and there were like so many good scenes in the movie that like I think in the hands of other people would come across as like really overblown or corny because mm-hmm. like I think in me describing it the person who hasn't seen this movie is like picturing it in their head is gonna be like that sounds corny mm. but there's literally a part in the movie where, where Salieri takes a crucifix off the wall and throws it into his fireplace mm-hmm. and it's just an internal monologue about how he is going to forsake God and if God is going to turn his back on him then he will do everything in his machinations to take this man down and it's like I know even in my retelling you're like okay but like it's so good it is like the turning point of the movie, you see this man like so driven crazy by like what's happening to him that he like literally throws a crucifix into a fire. And it's so earned by that point because we have seen so much up until that point that kind of just justifies it. Uh, All these times where Stalieri has already felt betrayed. One of these moments, so, you know, there are constant times when he encounters Mozart's music for the first time because, you know, obviously, you know, he writes all these different things and Salieri's encountering it. And every time he gets so overwhelmed and he gives him this new attitude, one of the greatest moments of the movie, and Ali and I were talking about this. So we brought up Christine Ebersol, who has the famous line, it's Turkish, my hairdresser says everything this year is going to be Turkish. Her character, Katarina, who is, we, I joked earlier, she's in the play, but she has no lines in the play because the play, um, very few people actually speak. Many characters that are sort of referred to offstage or silent in the play are full-blown characters in the movie, like Mozart's father. Which is one of the best improvements of the movie. Absolutely. Awesome. His wife, Constanza's mother is a character in the movie. She's not a character in the play and she's a wonderful character. Uh, But one is Katarina, who is a, Opera, she's an opera singer and specifically Salieri's prime pupil, one that he 
is very much uh, enamored with because she's beautiful and she's talented. Dumb as a box of rocks, but she's beautiful and she's talented. <laughs> and he, like, all he wants is to is to have her, but he won't because he's already decided to be chased for God for his talent and his career. Yeah, and, and in the play, he's married. He's not mm-hmm. in the movie, but whatever. Yes, he's a again, man of God, and he's not going to cheat on his wife or God. Another example of how the movie kind of goes even further with historical inaccuracy, but for the sake of dramatic uh, purposes, and it's it it works. They, I think, it's totally earned. But at that point, when we are introduced to Christine Ebersole, Katarina. We've already been introduced to Mozart. We already kind of know he's a bit of a shit. And not only is he a shit, the ways in which he's a shit to Salieri are worse because he's not intending to be. Music is just something that is so, that comes so easily to him. And when he says something's not good or something doesn't work, he's not saying it to be insulting. He's saying it because it's just the truth to him. And this is leading into the scene that Ali and I were talking about. So I just did a lot of background information on a scene that I want to talk about because it involves perhaps the the aria, the only aria and opera for me that I think of in the same way that I think of like Rainbow High and Evita or Dead Girl Walking in Heather's. Like it is an aria that slaps and it is a, <laughs> it is a, for pardon my vulgarity it is a pussy popping singer's delight and it is a diva moment and it is presented so brilliantly in the film so christine ebersole's character katarina uh tells salieri you know i i understand mozart's composing an opera uh any part in it for me and he's trying to deflect on it he doesn't he obviously doesn't want her in it because she's his pupil plus you know, Mozart's daring to write an opera that takes place in a brothel and operas are only about gods and noblemen. Like, how dare he? And the way they transition into the moment is he, they're, they're doing her scales and she hits a high C. And the next thing you see is a cut straight into the opera that Mozart has composed. And she is starring it on stage, holding that high C. And she is singing the aria, um, it's, it's Maltern Aller... Alan, I think it's called. Yeah, it's yeah. from. If you want to listen to it, it's from a production from the Seraglio, which is Die Inführung aus dem Seral. In case you can't find it in English, because it's written and performed in German. Yes, uh, and an, I think it's the end of like Act Three. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Act Two or Act Three, and it is all it purely is is her, the character in the opera is being told, I'm going to essentially, this, this guy's basically telling her like, I'm going to rape you. And basically it's an eight minute aria where she just says, no, you won't. And, <laughs> but it's, but the music is so fantastic because it is filled with fire and sass and rage. And yet, and you know, Salieri complains it has all these, you know, frilly scales and just, it's constantly showing off. And yes, it is, but in a way that is pure diva fierceness. And the way they show it in the movie has one of my favorite editing moments of all time to the extent that I can't believe the film did not win film editing for this moment alone, which is Mozart is conducting the opera and Salieri is in a box watching it. He's already furious because his prized pupil is starring in Mozart's opera. But on top of that, he's looking at the two of them in the opera and he knows, he can tell that Mozart has had sex with her. (laughs) 
and the way they edit it is you is Tom Holtz's Mozart is conducting, looking straight at her, and he's happy because his opera is being sung so well, and she's happy for two reasons, and it shows you who Katerina is to her core. She's happy because she's been given an aria that shows off everything she can do. So she is fulfilled as an artist, but she's also happy because Mozart gave her that good D probably the day before. <laughs> and so she is fulfilled as a woman. So, and the way that Christine Ebersole's looking at Tom Hulse as she's singing it is two, it's two minds. It is, oh my God, I am living my dream as a singer right now with this music. And also, oh my God, I had the best orgasm of my life last night. And the way they edit in that moment and that bum, 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 it cuts back and forth between them. And it is sexual heat. It, that, it is a, it's editing that fucks. It is editing that fucks. You know fucks. what else editing that fucks is in another opera sequence, which is Don Giovanni, which mm. is like the act one finale of the movie. Um, also, back in the day when movies used to be on more than one DVD, mm. it is where the DVD ended. And at first I was like, oh my God, is that the end of the movie? And then I switched DVDs, thank God. I was like 15 and stupid. Um, and once upon a time, DVDs were on more than one DVD. So yeah. we're old. Um, that editing fucks because you're seeing this production of Don Giovanni on stage. It's, you know, a full-on production. Uh, you're not really getting much else besides that. And Salieri's narration is saying that uh, Don Giovanni got produced and he used all of his power to make sure that the production closed early and it only plays a total of nine performances. And then it cuts to him hiding away in a box on the side, mm -hmm. trying to make himself as small as possible. And he says, but in secret, I saw the production seven times. And he's like enraptured looking at the stage absolutely devastated full of guilt full of he's moved he's happy that he succeeded but he's also like uh, watching the performance again because it's like so amazing to him and mm -hmm. in the performance it is a man being dragged to hell by the ghost of his father or that's not true. By the ghost of a, a, fa a woman's father who she, he like either, I cannot remember. I think he either like courted her and abandoned her or maybe he raped her. I don't remember. But he's like come back from the dead to drag him personally to hell. Mm -hmm. And we are like watching Salieri watch a man forsake God and be dragged to hell while he is watching the musical <laughs> where he's like, oh my God, it's amazing, but I'm also that way. And then it, the last, last moment of it is that Amadeus is like conducting it and he's exhausted because it's, it's hard, but also he put his like sweat into it and his uh -huh. soul and he's like not making money. And you know, if that, if in the first moment that you're talking about, he's at the peak of his career and he's so happy and he's like so mm -hmm. inspired in this one he's like worn down a little and mm -hmm. then it cuts out to the opera house which is sparsely attended and it's people just sort of like <laughs> clapping yeah. like oh yeah. okay that was cool. cool and salieri being like uh, in uh, completely like on another planet watching it thinking it's the best thing he's ever seen and also like i, I don't know it's amazing it's like them the editing in that moment is editing that fucks. I don't know what to say. It's oh, like it's incredible. absolutely. It's absolutely editing that fucks. And what I l also love is, because the, the play sort of talks about it a little bit, but the movie really shows it, is, again, the complexity of the story and of the characters. There is no reason for Salieri on a career level to envy Mozart because the movie makes it very clear. Salieri is very beloved. He's very popular. After the marriage of Figaro, where you know Salieri also 
is aware of just the genius of this opera and truly thinks it was it's the best opera created up until that point he then premieres his opera which is very traditional you know it's about gods it had you know it's very basic you know the music is pretty but it's not really exciting but my god does the entire opera house jump to its feet it's this smash hit the emperor says i think this is the best opera yet written and everyone is thrilled. So on a surface level, Salieri has what he wants, but then Mozart comes to see it and gives him the most backhanded compliment you could think of. And it's to quote a line that's shown later in the movie about a different moment. He says, you know, it's not Mozart that's laughing at me or criticizing me. It's God, you know, this, this man, knows what music is and what it should be. And I can recognize that he's right. So when I put forward an effort and this man insults it, I'm not insulted because, you know, this guy's being rude. I'm insulted because he's right and God is right. Right. And like the ultimate knowledge of like, you know, the emperor can give me a medal and mm -hmm. say it's the best opera ever written. But if, if I don't believe it, what kind of pleasure am I taking from it? It's like eating a feast that doesn't taste like anything. Yeah. It's, there's a line in the play that I don't think is in the movie where he says towards the end, he goes part of the curse. He was like, what do I have? You know, I've been called distinguished by people who have no idea what being distinguished means. Right. Uh, I mean, and they, and they translate that into the end of the movie, which is, one of the best endings of a movie maybe of all time where he does this this monologue about um basically he's telling the priest like oh don't worry i have found my place in history i'm the patron saint of mediocrity mm. and then you know his one of his final lines is mediocrities of the world i absolve you mm -hmm. and it's just like him understanding that so many other people are also salieri's question for you how does what does Amadeus mean to you and why does it keep coming back to you I mean it's a lot of things which is such a bullshit answer I wish I had a better one one is I love classical music um, and I love Mozart and so it's like this amazing movie that like has so much gorgeous music it's so lush it's so easy to get lost in it i find it in, in, in imminently rewatchable for that reason alone mm -hmm. i love the opera sequences like it's just like oh it's so nice to hear that music then it's amazingly well acted and it's like a genuine masterclass from so many people mm -hmm. um it's also a perfect storytelling story of like foils um like, if anyone has ever, like, I need an example for your AP lit test of, like, a, a thing that uses foils. It's like Antonio Salieri, Amadeus Mozart. Like, perfect foils for each other. Mm -hmm. They have what the other one doesn't have, what the other one doesn't want, or blah, 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 blah. Um, it's amazing to look at. It's, like, so easy to watch. It's, like, you just relax into the warm bath of it being, like, this great <laughs> period piece. Um, and I genuinely think it has something to say. And it fr frankly has a lot to say about a lot of different things, um, including like the arts not being recognized by people, you know, like w when somebody dares to say something different, how mm -hmm. hard it is for that to become the norm. Because now we think of opera as being like boring and stuffy. When at the time when Mozart was like, I want to write 
Marriage of Figaro, they were like, no, that's based on a piece of literature we have banned. Like that, 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 that shows that like servants can be smarter than their masters and it makes fun of royalty and it's, mm-hmm. it's vulgar. Like we'll never do that. And then he writes this beautiful opera and it's like, for us, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marriage of Figaro, whatever. But like, it reminds you too, that like this problem has gone on forever. And like mm-hmm. the people who fund art are not always the people who understand art and like art is commercial and da, 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 da. And it's like, we have this conversation every day. Yeah. Well, it's just so good. Yeah. So, I mean, I love the, that, what you just said, because I've, that's something that I've been saying for a while in terms of like Broadway, right? So Broadway hit, so the American, the the musical is one of the few cultural uh, contributions that America has brought the world. And it is something that has, that its roots are very complex because it comes from operettas and operas and Greek tragedy and, you know, pantomimes. It's, it's, it's from all over the place. But Broadway was sort of created to be kind of the uh, cor- uh, the uh, meeting point of commerce and art. And the idea being that if you create something new and exciting, the people will come. And over time, that has become less and less the case, I guess, because finances for theater have gotten so large investors want a safe bet and in some ways you go yeah sure you know you'll make money you'll your thing will run for a while but in 20 years who will remember it in 50 years who will remember it and i think an example being and i'm not trying to throw too much shade at it but we think about the tony awards where follies and two gentlemen of verona were up for best musical Follies was not a well-regarded piece by a lot of critics. There were many audiences that didn't care for it. And Two Gentlemen of Verona was a light, fun hit. And it ended up winning Best Musical. Now, we look back at it and we go, what were the Tony Awards smoking? You know, clearly- I mean, most people wouldn't even, like, Two Gentlemen of Verona has really good rep, which is the only reason I'm aware of it, because, like, I'm a teacher who is responsible for finding repertoire for students. Yeah, it's got good songs got great songs and it's like you know if you have a specific kind of voice that can like wail on those things it's like great I've got this like treasure trove of great music but as far as beyond the score I do not have like a cultural knowledge of two general two gentlemen of Verona which is like yeah same thing where it's like you look at Follies and you're like well that changed a lot of stuff and we know Follies like the the fact that you Ellie Gordon who I don't care what you say about you, and I know I insulted you about an hour ago, but you are a very intelligent, talented person who knows a lot about theater. Like, you are no dummy. You are not someone who just, like, came to this yesterday after seeing Be More Chill on YouTube. Like, you know your Matt, shit. this is being recorded. Recorded. People are going to know that you said this nice thing about me. I know. This is going to end your career. <laughs> it's totally going to end my career. I can't believe I'm being nice to someone. Anywho. Um, the fact that you don't know that much about Two Gentlemen of, of Verona speaks volumes about how history has now treated that show. Correct. It is not for lack of my trying. It yes. is truly a, a lack of knowledge. And yes. I can't go back in time and see it. So No, and it's, 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 it's his, you know, history has a way of kind of really highlighting the shit that matters. And it's not, like, there's no agenda to history. There's, I mean, you can... You can relay history however way you want, right? Like a textbook can word it in whatever way you want. It's why like we are kind of all now sort of reprogramming ourselves to rethink American history, for example. Uh, but 
the facts are the facts and the fact and the even the uh fact that we are we have come to this point where we are reprogramming ourselves uh emphasizes the point that the shit that matters in history is stuff that will come to the forefront. Right. The it will, will persevere. Regardless. Exactly. So, and I mean, you know, 40 years isn't, 50 years actually, I guess, with Follies, isn't that long in the grand scheme of things. But in 50 years for that show to be the one that has maintained and for two gentlemen of Verona to kind of fall by the wayside is a Mozart Salieri in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, something can be popular in the moment it can make the money in the moment it can be what everyone considers the safe bet in the moment but you have no control over how time will uh affect your work the best or how people's how the public opinion will decide to look back on your work exactly and it's like that's why it's like is art subjective 100 percent? can we but like people who know more about music than any of us can look at mozart's music and go well, okay, here's how he busted music wide open. Mm-hmm. Here's how, like, this is different than anything that ever been done before. Here's how this paved the way for this. And it's like, if Salieri's music can't do the same, it will be forgotten, regardless of taste. Because, like, taste will always change and grow. But, like, did it have an impact on, like, the way that music was made forevermore? And the answer is no. And so it's like, that's another part that I think is so great about the movie is that, like, is Mozart's music better subjectively? Yes. But the movie is also saying it's also better objectively. And it like has these great moments where it like shows you, it proves it to you. He's like, I'm gonna have seven voices singing at the same time. And they're like, Mozart, that's impossible. It's stupid. And he's like, no, and I'm gonna tell you why. And then he tells you as the audience why. And you're like, uh-huh, you're right. But the thing is, it's not even that. So, okay. What I love about Mozart's attitude in the play and in the film. And this is something that I want to kind of use as a uh, devil's advocate for theater today as well, because while I was just, you know, bemoaning a lot of commercialization, that's not to say that trying to break boundaries for the sake of breaking boundaries is the right move either. What Mozart does and the way he talks about the works he's trying to write in opera, it's not because he's like, I need to be the pioneer. What he's writing about is stuff that genuinely interests him. Like it's what excites him. It's what makes him, it's what he wants to see. And that is sort of the attitude you have to have as an artist is what is my point of view? What excites me? What do I want to see that's not being shown? Because that passion is what will come through in the end. And, you know, regardless of whatever uh, weaknesses your work might have in the future, if there is a drive behind it and an excitement behind it, that will come through. And that is part of the reason why a lot of his work has sort of stood the test of time and why a lot of, say, Sondheim's work has stood the test of time because the stuff that he wrote that he was passionate about is the stuff that we have also grown to become passionate about. Right. And it's like not even like he was writing it because he was technically trying to be like, I'm going to prove something can be being made new, made new technically. But it's like the, I'm genuinely borrowing the words from Peter Schaefer, which is that like in a conversation of seven people talking at a time, it's just noise that you con- mm-hmm. can't comprehend it. But in music and opera, you can. Mm-hmm. And so like his passion is like being like, I can tell this story. I can like do this. And only through the power of music can I achieve this. So you have to let me write my opera. I'm like, <laughs> give me the funding. Yeah. And like, and, that's, and so it's like, it is that weird part where like the movie is also kind of about commercialism. 
because they're like, oh, Mozart, Mozart, like operas aren't performed in German. And he's like, well, this one is. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, then it's a big hit. And then it's, we're not even like a huge hit, but, you know, remembered by us and also made a stir at the time. But so it's like, it is about the meeting of art and commercialism even then. Something else about Amadeus that I kind of realized is how beloved it is by creatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, For anyone who's interested, Amadeus is referenced in a multitude of things. Specifically, there are three television shows in particular that have outright honored it. One is The Simpsons, which does a whole episode based off of Amadeus. Uh, 30 Rock has a whole subplot inspired by Amadeus with Tracy Jordan and Frank. You know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, and the they point. also have that, that part in 30 Rock, too, where the doctor is running down the hallway and he's wearing the black cape that, and he's like, yes. look, that's so funny. Same episode, funny. same episode, same episode. It's that's all. That's right. See, I always remember it as being the part which is not the actual reference, which is the Amadeus. Amadeus. <laughs> what's, what's Amadeus? It's a pun on Amadeus, dummy. Uh, no, there's a whole episode of 30 Rock where there's a subplot that is directly inspired by Amadeus and they do full on shout outs to the movie. Yeah. And then Family Guy even has a whole scene, a whole like random ass joke that is directly lifted from a scene from the film. And it's so, it's so accurate, the ripping off that you watch and you go, oh, Seth MacFarlane has seen Amadeus at least three dozen times. Yes. It's the scene from the party, right? Where he's like, yes. like play Salieri. Yes. Play yeah, Peter that's, Griffin. That's really good. It is really good. And it's so random. It has nothing to do with the plot. It's just... It's just there for people who love the movie. Yes, exactly. And I think part of the reason why creatives love Amadeus is that it's one of the few films that truly shows the thrill and the messiness of creating and the frustration of creating something that's not appreciated, the frustration of creating something that's appreciated and forgotten. It it covers all the bases in in a way that truly I don't think has been equaled until Ratatouille, no, 23 years later. Wow, another one of my top five movies. Girl, did, we didn't see Ratatouille together. We saw Wally We together. saw Wally together and cried like babies. Allie Gordon, it got to the point where Allie Gordon started counting how many times I was crying during Wally. Although that makes me sound like I didn't cry. I fully cried. Matt just fully cried. cried me. Yes. No, Allie was just sort of like crying sort of softly throughout. I would sort I would stop for 10 minutes and then bawl for 10 minutes. This is all to say Ratatouille is another film that's all about the creative process and is probably one of the best films about it. It, but, um, but, you know, it's about cooking, obviously, and it's about a rat, but it shares that similarity to Amadeus where it is about the creative creating. And you know? it's about being a critic on the outside. Yes. Because in the end, when um, Anton Ego is like, my criticism, I can write a hundred words, I can say anything, and it will still not mean as much to one person as like one genuine piece of art or creation mm-hmm. will mean like, to give somebody something they enjoy will speak so much more than anything I could ever say about it. And it's like, that's bold. Well, to be, to bring it back to the subject before we call it a day, it is sort of like the Salieri to the Mozart because we don't think of any reviews in the past as the reviews of that person, but rather how it is relating to the work itself. So like no one remembers on its own what the New York Times had to say about the Wizard of Oz, but we know what it has to say about the Wizard of Oz because we care about the Wizard of Oz, you know? Yes. And also like historically the context. We're like, whoa, yeah. were they amazed by it? Let's find out if exactly. audiences were amazed by it. I also think that it's like 
to bring it back to like nerdy stuff about like the Tony Awards and things like that, um, it reminds me a lot of like the whole drama about like Sunday in the Park with George losing to Lacage. Mm-hmm. And, like, people being, like, it felt like the divide between, like, traditional musical theater and, like, ooh, the new, the avant-garde. And it's, like, okay, well, that's kind of what it was made out to be because of that juncture in history. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's how it was per- portrayed in, like, reviews and the write-ups of what it was. And then, like, Jerry Herman said that thing that I, I know he didn't mean it in, like, a shady way of just being, like, it goes to show, like, a good old-fashioned musical can still, like, knock your socks off. And people were, like, oh, my God, he's killing Sondheim. It's, like, <laughs> I don't think that was his intention there. And it's, like, that's – all of that stuff only exists because of, like, the context with which we have given it. The only reason why, that, why they're compared is because they both opened in a – in the – period of time where broadway uh ranks works right and exactly and like we would never say those two shows in the same sentence otherwise yes the only reason we do is because of like the context of history similar to how the killing fields i only know in context to amadeus because they both came out the same year and the killing fields won film editing whereas amadeus did not wow did killing fields have any editing that fucks i don't think so i think so but i'm sure it's a wonderful film in its own right and the only reason why we compare it to amadeus is because of the year in which it came out otherwise it stands on its own i'm sure not that i know anything about it I just, I just, that was something where I was looking up information on Amadeus and I was looking up all the awards it won and it did not win cinematography or film editing. And I was like, wow. how could it, how could it I can't it believe not? it did win cinematography. I think it lost to Killing Fields. Wow. Uh, and I, yeah, but we should probably watch that movie because like, I want to see the film that beat that, the editing that fucks. Yeah. Uh, in those categories. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it won, like, what, eight Oscars? It did. It won eight Oscars. That's insane that I knew that. Um, but, yeah, like, it was obviously a big hit critically and commercially and yes. all of the above. And, but I will also say, I'm surprised by how many people have not seen Amadeus, despite mm-hmm. it being, like, such a big hit. Or when I mention it to friends, they're like, oh, my God, I think we used to watch that when my teacher was sick in school. Mm. And I'm like, you should watch it again as an adult. It's, like, it's a movie that fucks. It is. Well, it's a movie that I think a lot of – people now sort of are scared to not honestly scared scared gives it gives too powerful a uh, an emotion but people are wary of it a because it's it is long there is a director's cut that's three hours and then the theatrical cut that's two hours and 40 full disclosure i think the theatrical cut is better me but, too but they've really made it hard to find the theatrical cut yeah you have to you have to basically buy the theatrical cut because the director's cut is what streams for the most part yeah uh, well, if you ever need to borrow it, I've got it. So as just like, get in I, contact girl. with me. <laughs> as do I. And, but so the, the length, the fact that it's a period film and, you know, it's this big Oscar winner. A lot of people kind of turn their noses up at like those kind of movies that are these big period Oscar winning films. Cause they like, nobody wants to watch Out of Africa or The English Patient. And I think a lot of people unfairly lump Amadeus into that category of these really long pretentious period films that are like Oscar bait and Amadeus isn't that kind of movie it is truly a movie that fucks and it's one of the rare times where the Oscars recognized a movie that did something different with Oscar baity material yeah I will say if someone is listening to this and I don't know why and doesn't care about Amadeus or us I think if I could try to sell you on any part of it it is that the end of the movie, which has 
been a huge, huge sweeping piece with tons of characters and costumes and sets and da da da. It all culminates with only Salieri and Mozart in a room. And Mozart is sick and weak and he's too weak to write, but he's on a deadline. And it is a deadline that he doesn't know Salieri has imposed upon him. And Salieri is helping him commit on paper the uh, Requiem, the Mass. And because Mozart can't get up to play it on piano, he has to describe it. And it's this like meeting of the minds genius moment where it's like a genius describing what he wants to write down. And Salieri, despite himself and despite hating him, is caught up in how amazing the music is. And the fact that Mozart is just hearing it in his head and in one take essentially is like saying Uh like, write this. And he's being like, yes, yes, that's it, it's good. And like you as the audience know, this is killing Mozart. But Salieri almost forgets because he's having such a good time meeting with a person who is like mm-hmm. an equal, if not like a person who's better than him. And that is like, I mean, like that's basically the scene in like Heat where they sit down at the table to talk and be like, okay, bitch, like you're the cop and I'm the bad guy, but like, let's have a meeting of minds. Let's meet here in the moment. Like, that is the straightest reference we have done today. Oh my God. I had to really like redeem, I had to like really show I could hang, you know what I mean? Like a chick who can hang. Uh, you know, and on top of that, Salieri is so excited because underneath it all, it's the closest thing he will ever, dictating Mozart's notes is the closest he will ever come to writing a work of godly genius. And so that, that fucking moment, I think is one of the best pieces of cinema like truly ever put on film. Absolutely. And I think it's like, it's amazing to watch this movie that has been so huge in scope, narrow down to just the two protagonists. And like the acting is amazing. The music is amazing. The production is amazing. And like, that is like the scene I would say to like sell anybody on the film. And so if that sounds exciting, watch the fucking movie. Absolutely. 100%. Or like watch Heat. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, eh. Does anyone need to watch Heat? I actually think it's a really good film. I'm so sorry. I mean, that's fine. We all, we all have our movies, girl. <laughs> anyway, this has been divine. This has been lovely. I'm so happy you came back to be nerdy with me again about another British drama import. Thank you. It actually was like, I had a great time talking about Quorum Boy, and if I even inspired literally one person to look it out, I have already expanded the fan base by 70%. Yeah. So I did a service there. I think but you do. I don't know. When I left from doing it, I was like, I felt kind of guilty because I was like, damn, I just talked up this thing that I think is incredible, and I left people with no way to like put it in their lives, which kind of sucks. Because yeah. it's like, uh, you know what I mean? It's like basically being like, ah, oh, remember the good old days? Well, they're over and don't fucking try to research them. Because it's like, no. you can look up like a couple little clips. And like, also recently I looked up a clip from Quorum Boy that was on YouTube. And I was like, who uploaded this? And it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, when did I do this? It's like like my old like YouTube account. Oh my um, God. Which is so fucking funny. Because I was like, oh, this person was smart. They ripped this from Broadway World. Who did this? And the answer is, I did this. As like a 15 year old. Like, what a bitch. Um, That's straight out of Fight Club. Truly. I like, I like mementoed myself into being like, rip that from Broadway World. Two more, go away two more straight boy references right there, guys. Fight Club and Memento. <laughs> I hate, okay, but if it makes you feel any better, I hate Fight Club. Does that help? No, I actually like Fight Club. So. Oh my God. All there right. There we go. Um, oh. The only thing we yeah. can agree on is Oscar movies and Broadway. We can't agree on straight boy culture. And also All Stars. 
And all stars, yes. Um, um, but yeah, I, I'm I am glad that I got to go back to something that I can tell people in good conscience to seek out, and like yes. they can. They absolutely can. You can absolutely find Amadeus. It's if you can find the original cut, which is two hours and forty minutes, I recommend it. The director's cut is very good. It's and includes some scenes that are actually crucial to the plot, but it does drag the movie out a bit. And one of the things that I like about the theatrical cut is how tight everything is. While it is two hours and 40 minutes, it flies by. Yes. And I can't rightfully say that the three hour director cut completely flies by. It's still very watchable and you won't, you'll never be bored, but there are stretches where it's a little winded. Yes. And I will say that I appreciate you saying that because my two favorite pieces of media are famously long which mm-hmm. is Amadeus and the uh, Angels in America, yes. either on stage or the HBO adaptations. So people are like, bitch, your perception of long is insane. You will watch six hours of Angels in America. I'm like, that is true. But I do actually think Amadeus is just so interesting and there's so much mm-hmm. there's that like it, the, the two hour and 40 minute one does kind of fly by. Also like, isn't like Avengers like three hours and 10 minutes? That's it. Length for me. It's okay. Length is immaterial. Hear that? Hear that guys out there. I'm telling you right now, length is immaterial. I care about what you do with it. Um, <laughs> but so, it's not about the length. It's about the motion of the length. Exactly. The- well, so it, if you can justify the length, it doesn't matter. It's it, excitement is excitement. Don't be turned off by the length of a piece of media. If it's good, it's good, and you won't be checking your watch. And I can guarantee you, if you watch the theatrical cut of Amadeus, you won't be checking your watch one bit. Yeah. And that's a glowing recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, and again, I'm someone else. You know, I, Angels in America is my favorite play as well. And you can say, Matt, you know, you have, uh, you can stand long pieces of work. Let me tell you something. I sat through all 90 minutes of Amelie on Broadway and I was checking my watch the entire time. That is true. Like something can feel like the longest goddamn day of your life if you don't Mm. like it. Anywho, Allie, I think now's a good time for us to wrap up. Uh, Where can people find you on all medias of social? Yes. So I am on Twitter at Miss Alice Nutting. Yes, it's a reference to the mystery of Edwin Drood. That's spelled M-S-A-L-I-C-E-N-U-T-T-I-N-G. That's my social basically everywhere. You can catch me like on Instagram and all that stuff too, although I don't know why you would because I don't really post there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, also because the world is like really wacky upside down, I used to say, hey, if you like me, you should come see me perform at the Upright Citizens Brigade. But nobody performs slide anymore and me no. maybe never will so i said i would I like think to say, that is i think that is a very very ap- apocalyptic view i think we are just very impatient we all want to perform again and we are not willing to wait yeah no i i mean i don't disagree it's just uh things will be different and i don't want yes. anything to change because i like liked my life so We'll see. Um, But now, (laughs) if you like anything that I do, the easiest place to find me is on a podcast, which is called Second Best D&D Adventure. And we're on Twitter at at Second Best D&D. And so if you like comedy or long-form storytelling uh, or If you just like listening to Allie talk. Yeah, or me talking. I talk on that accent in that one with a Southern accent because that's my character voice. So you know that I'm a different character. So if you enjoy this, you probably like it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know. Once again, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplick, the usual spelling. Please, if you liked this episode, if you like the podcast, 
give us a nice five-star rating, write us a little review, if you will. It helps with the algorithm. I've said it again. It's sort of like on Yelp when you are looking for a good Chinese food restaurant and you see three options and they all have five stars. If one has 400 ratings, one has 200 ratings, and one has 100 ratings, you're going to go with the one with 400 uh, five-star ratings, right? I mean, you are right. It's the same thing with podcasts. If you find a million Broadway podcasts, of which there are, you know, you, we want people to find this one and to like this one. So the more ratings we get, the more people are going to see it and, and trust it. So tell your friends, give us the rating. It helps with the algorithm. I hate to be thirsty, but like, what else am I going to be in this time? That's true. Podcasts yeah. are one of the only things that has, as far as like my creative ventures go, it is the only thing I'm still kind of consciously still creating. Yep. And I will be... I'm working on a second podcast right now with two of my friends that will be coming out shortly. And I will give you guys more information about that when the time comes. But in the meantime, if you like this podcast and you want me to continue spending time on it, you know, show me that my efforts are worthy, you know, make me feel like a, like a Salieri in his prime, not a Mozart in his wreckage. Wow. Yeah. That, I don't know what that means, but it means something. It felt real. (laughs) It felt real. Uh, I'm going to take the steering wheel this time and pick a diva because I have not had the option to pick a diva in a while. I am going to pick Miss Melba Moore in Pearly singing oh. I Got Love. I was hoping you'd say that. Of course. Were you though? Yeah. When you said Melba Moore, I was like, oh boy, I hope he says I Got Love. Of course. What else is there? I mean, a lot. I mean, a lot. Yeah, she has a lot of pop songs, but like, no, we're talking diva. So okay. I'm, I'm talking them, them high notes she hits in Pearly. My God. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's all I got to say. This has been Broadway Breakdown. Thank you for coming, Allie. I'm so happy you joined me again. Yeah. And also like, not to like make the audience jealous, but after these hit stop hit like hit record and like stop, we're probably gonna hang out on Zoom for a little bit. Yay, I'm excited. Okay, love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening, guys. Bye. wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise.